The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. This is a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 13. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. The word of the Lord. Friends, let's stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 28. That's on page 822 of your pew Bibles. It's the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Dan. I'm, I'm very grateful to serve as a pastor here. Uh, I know that a, a few of you will likely know that Lewis Lovett 
uh, our newest church planter in residence, was actually scheduled to preach this morning. Uh, some of you might have even come this morning specifically uh, to hear Lewis and to support him, and I'm very sorry to disappoint. Uh, Lewis actually uh, sadly called me yesterday morning. Um, don't worry, uh, he and his whole family have COVID. They're home sick and recovering. They're gonna be okay, everybody's feeling all right. Um, but they didn't think it was appropriate to, to be here with us this morning. So before we begin, I think it'd be right for us to actually just pause and, and to say a prayer for the Lovett family. So let's pray for them. Heavenly Father, thank you for Lewis and Maggie and their four beautiful girls, Ellie, Kate, Ruthie, Caroline, and Betsy. I pray that you would watch over them and restore them to full health, uh, Lord. And, and now we pray for the sermon. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So folks, today we're actually going to take a break from our normal summer sermon series on Christ in the Psalms. And instead, what we're going to talk about just for today is something that we're calling the shape of our mission as a marginalized church. The shape of our mission as a marginalized church. Now, what does that daunting title mean? Here's, here's what it means. When I say marginalized church, what I mean is the deepening and expanding secularism, which has pushed and continues to push the church of Jesus to the margins, the fringe of society. By marginalized church, we mean a church that no longer occupies a place of political or cultural power. Uh, I was actually thinking about using the word irrelevant, irrelevant church, but I thought that's a little offensive. We won't do that. Um, so marginalized church. Now by mission, here's what I mean. I don't mean a church program by which we train and send people overseas. This certainly includes that, but it's not limited to it. No, rather I mean something much broader and bigger. When we say mission, what we mean is the way in which the church, followers of Jesus, participate in the mission of God. God himself is on a mission to redeem and renew all things in the person and work of Jesus. And we, as his people, are invited to participate in that mission. Now, by shape, here's what I mean. I mean, what does that actually look like for us? What form does it take? How do we actually go about participating in God's mission of redemption and renewal? What shape does it take for us as individuals and also as a congregation? How do we embody this mission? So if you're listening, uh, you can probably already tell that I'm making a number of assumptions, okay? And I'm not gonna spend any time explaining or proving these assumptions. So if you disagree with one of these, that's okay, but maybe we'll just have to talk afterwards, okay? So assumption number one, I am assuming that God is on a mission. Assumption number two, I am assuming that we as a church are called to participate in that mission. And assumption number three, I am assuming that the place, the location from which we participate in the mission of God is the margin, the fringe of society, not the center. Okay? So I know not everybody agrees with those three assumptions, but um, that's, those are the assumptions under which we're going to labor uh, in this sermon this morning. Okay? So if you take exception to those, see me afterwards. Now, let's begin. In Medea, Algeria, there is this beautiful Trappist monastery called Our Lady of Atlas. And for nearly 50 years, the Christian monks have lived there in peaceful harmony with the mostly non-Christian villagers uh, who dwell in and around the abbey. 
Uh, and the monks were pretty, have been historically pretty well integrated into village life. They have formed a farming co-op to train neighborhood families to farm the land. They feed the poor. They provide medical care to the sick. It's really a beautiful ministry of service and love to the community. But a number of years ago, in 1996, in fact, uh, there, things kind of suddenly and dramatically changed. The Algerian Civil War broke out. Those of you who know your history will know this. Uh, and some neighboring villagers were killed. Others were kidnapped, and people everywhere in this area were scared. The local government actually came to the monastery, this is a true story, and urged the monks to leave, to evacuate. And they initially refused, saying that their ministry and their calling was to be present, to be there amongst the people. And a few days and a few weeks uh, passed, and the entire region descended into the chaos of war. And the government then came back and ordered, commanded the monks to leave. They were not being asked this time. They were being told, you must go. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I think I've heard this story before. And you are probably thinking that if you've ever seen the 2011 film of Gods and Men. If you haven't seen it, there's your homework. Go home and watch a movie of Gods and Men. It's so good. The plot and tension of that film centers around the decision that these brothers, these monks faced. What will they do? Their lives are in danger. The people they are there to love and serve are in danger. Other people that they are there to love and serve have turned against them. In any minute, men with assault rifles are going to kick in the door of the monastery and drag them out into the night. So what are they going to do? Well, what are their options? They could flee, saving themselves. They could try to maybe find a way to conform and fit in with the new regime that is in town. Or they could pick up arms and fight back, take back the village by force. The most intense and fascinating scenes of the film, if you get a chance to watch it, are the multiple times the brothers gather around a table to discuss what they're going to do. And this is kind of what any of us would do, right? We'd gather the family together and go, all right, we have a decision to make. And... Uh, there's division amongst the ranks. There's strategy, there's self-preservation, there's calling, there's duty. All of these ideas kind of get put on the table and they can't come to any consensus about a way forward. And the next morning after one of these long dinner table debates, uh, one of the villagers is sitting next to one of the elderly monks and she asks him, what are you guys gonna do? Are you gonna stay, are you gonna go, are you gonna fight, are you gonna flee, what's the deal? And this elderly monk shakes his head, slumps his shoulders and replies, we are birds on a branch. We don't know if or when we will fly away. And what I love about that painful and yet kind of beautiful moment is it, it shows us a tension. There's this advancing animosity and threat from the very people that these folks are trying to love and serve. And that tension is... I think not only the same tension that a lot of followers of Jesus experience today, but it's actually the same tension that the Apostle Paul experienced in his ministry to the Corinthian church in the first century. Now, our text that was read by Irene just a few moments ago from 2 Corinthians uh, is written by the Apostle Paul to a young, newly formed congregation in the first century city of Corinth. And I just want to tell you a little bit about what that place was like so we can get our imaginations into what it must have been like to be on the receiving end of a letter like that. By the first century, Corinth had an urban population of 80,000 and a rural population of about 20,000. So altogether, the metro Corinthian area uh, would have been about 100,000 people probably the wealthiest city in Greece 
and the third most important city in the empire, right behind Rome and Alexandria. So if you're imagining here, Rome is kind of like Washington, D.C., right? It's the political center. Alexandria is kind of like New York City. It's like this intellectual center. And Corinth is kind of like Los Angeles. It's a seaport that's also like an entertainment center. And because Corinth was destroyed in 146 BC and then rebuilt by Julius Caesar almost 100 years later in 44 BC, there's no old money in Corinth, no old aristocracy. Corinth is a new money town. Uh, Scott Haifman, who's a, a theologian I sometimes read, describes it this way. He writes, Corinth was a freewheeling boomtown filled with the materialism, pride, and self-confidence that comes from having made it in a new place with a new social identity. The pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality that would become so characteristic of the American frontier filled the air of Corinth. So Corinth has this um, entertainment and sports culture in addition to being a seaport. The theater in Corinth held 14,000 in Paul's day. The concert hall held 3,000. The Isthmian Games celebrated biannually in Corinth were second only in size to the Olympic Games. Um, there are 26 different sacred places for the Greco-Roman pantheon in the city of Corinth. 34 different deities were worshipped. There were temples to Fortune and Neptune and Apollo and Aphrodite and Poseidon. In other words, pluralism in North America actually pales in comparison to the kind of pluralistic society that existed in Corinth in the first century. And here's the point to all that background data. What I want us to see is the juxtaposition between the materialism and the entertainment and the culture and the wealth and the style of first century Corinth and the Apostle Paul's suffering. Can you feel the tension between those two things? They do not go together. What was Paul's ministry like in Corinth? In Corinth? Was it stylish? No, it was endurance through suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, Paul lists a lot of really terrible things. When you were listening to Irene read that a few minutes ago, did you think to yourself, it was a mistake to come to church in the summer? I thought, it like, I thought the vibe was going to be a little bit different here. This is really heavy for a sermon in the middle of July. <laughs> Can we get something lighter, please? What is his list? Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. What is he saying? He's saying our ministry here has not gone our way. Things have not gone as planned. Our ministry and our very lives are marked by opposition and suffering. And then a few verses later, in verses six and seven, he lists a very different string of ideas, a lot of very beautiful things. He says, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, weapons of righteousness. What is he saying? He's saying, yet through it all, we have exhibited virtue. The fruit of the Spirit is at work within us. And then a few verses later in verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, Paul then breaks down a series of opposites showing what is happening in him physically versus what is happening through him spiritually. And this list kind of goes back and forth. Dishonor versus honor, slander versus praise, imposters yet true, unknown yet well-known, dying yet behold we live, punished not killed, sorrowful, always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing, possessing everything. What's happening? The apostle is unpacking for us the wonderful and terrifying mystery of the gospel in life and ministry, which is what? Life through death, healing through wounds, resurrection through crucifixion. Now, 
Why does it have to be that way? Uh, there might be some of you like theology nerds that are like, okay, I'm tracking with you so far. The rest of us normal human beings are thinking, I don't like that very much. I would like, prefer a different paradigm, please. Why does it have to be that way? Well, listen, the Apostle Paul was marginalized by those people that he loved. The very people that he was seeking to shepherd were all seeking to push him out of their lives. And I know that there's probably a common thread here. There might be a number of us here this morning who actually feel that very same kind of thing, that the people in your life that you are seeking to love are in subtle or perhaps not so subtle ways seeking to push you out. The very people you have committed to love would just as well not have you meddling in their life. And of course we all know, or at least I hope we all know, that followers of Jesus today do not hold a place of respect in society. Quite the opposite, right? We are at best, what are we? We are at best misguided fools or at worst, a dangerous remnant of religious oppression, right? So in the Apostle Paul's suffering, what do we see? Well, we might see the diminished or marginalized role of the Jesus follower, both inside and outside the church. But thankfully, that's not the only thing we see because Paul was not only seeking to suffer for his people, but also to exemplify for them the way of gospel life. Now, why did they need that modeled for them? Well, because they lived in Corinth, right? You heard the whole like description. What was it like to be a follower of Jesus in the first century in a place like that? The church was small and weak compared to the wealth and power and influence of nearly every other thing that was happening in Corinth at that time. Christians as individuals and the church as a whole were gonna have to learn how to participate in the mission of God from the margins as an irrelevant startup fringe group. And that was gonna be hard and they were not ready for it. So Paul is commending his own suffering to them as an invitation, which is why in verses 11 through 13, he concludes this little part of the letter with these beautiful and kind of surprising words. He writes, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. You see, the author, Paul, is not trying to get his audience to like him. That's not his agenda. He's saying, look, we've opened our hearts to you and to God. We're pouring out our lives in love and it's killing us, literally, <laughs> but it's a great joy. And you, well, what about you? Well, your hearts are cold. They're all closed up, both to God and to each other. You've got to change. You've got to widen your hearts if you're going to walk the path of love in Jesus. And this call to the Corinthian church in the first century to open wide their hearts, in it, we actually find a vision for the marginalized Christian, the marginalized pastor, and the marginalized church for us in the city of Richmond in the 21st century. You see, for us as the Christian church is pushed towards the margins of Western society, what we have to do is recapture the call of Jesus to give our lives away in love. And we're gonna look at doing that in two ways. One is through pain, the other is through presence. Through pain and through presence. Let's talk about these two. First, the pain that causes us, natural humans, not those theology nerds out there, right? But normal people. The pain that causes us to restrict our affections. And then presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus to us in his affection. 
Let's talk about the pain first. Let's talk about the difficulty and pain of this because you and I both want to avoid pain, right? This is like agenda number one for me in most of my life. How do I avoid pain? We close up our hearts, we restrict our affections, and we do this in all manner of ways. And what I want to do next is talk about three different postures or three different manners in which we kind of go about protecting ourselves. Here's manner number one. It's a defensive posture towards culture and society at large. The defensive posture says, I will avoid pain by defending myself. In this kind of posture, churches or individual Christians tend to emphasize things like preserving orthodoxy, preserving the purity of the church. We talk about the dangers of being corrupted by the larger culture. We talk about not allowing our minds or our hearts to be polluted. And so we circle the wagons. We withdraw from the public sphere. We withdraw from our neighbors and from schools and from other institutions. And we do this as individuals. We also do this as congregations. We think of the outside world as just that, outside. Now, there's something to write about this. Think about it. There's something right here. This kind of posture rightly perceives a very real danger. It takes the fall into the corruption of sin seriously. And it recognizes the difficulty of participating in a secular society without being influenced. It rightly recognizes that danger. And it desires to protect and preserve what is good and true and beautiful. All of that is right. But it also gets something wrong, doesn't it? It fails to move towards other people. It retreats from them. It fails to remember that the gospel is not only a private belief, but a public truth to be proclaimed. And it tends to overestimate one's own personal purity. It tends to underestimate the danger in here. It rightly estimates danger outside. It underestimates danger in here. It tends to think, we'll circle the wagons. We'll keep all the good stuff in here. We'll keep the bad stuff outside. But you know what it doesn't get? It doesn't get that when you circle those wagons, there's bad stuff already inside, right? Now it's trapped. It fails to see the image of Christ in the stranger, in the other person. Now, who is Jesus in this kind of posture and paradigm? Well, Jesus is weak. He needs protecting. He needs defending. He needs us to defend and protect him. Very weak view of Jesus. Now, how does a congregation behave if, as a, as a whole, it adopts this kind of posture? Well, it becomes a very fearful and wary congregation. Lots of orthodoxy, or, or, orthodoxy tests, right? Everyone's looking at each other with just a little hint of suspicion, trying to make sure if everybody's as righteous as they're supposed to be. High emphasis on truth, low emphasis on love. Very easily triggered. Now, how do pastors behave? in these kind of settings. Well, pastors tend to think of themselves as defenders of the flock, always looking out for wolves. So the defensive posture, it gets a few things white, right, but it fails to fully open our hearts to other people. It fails to embody the gospel. And so it actually cannot be the fundamental paradigm in the way in which we operate as a mission, as a marginalized church. Now, listen, on the entirely opposite end of the spectrum, in a totally different way, there's actually a way that people keep their hearts narrow and closed off. And that is by responding to a rapidly secularizing society with the opposite of defense, which is like passivity, the passive posture. Now, the passive posture says, I will avoid pain by placating others. If the symbol of the defensive posture is a shield, the symbol of the passive posture is a white flag of surrender. Now, 
careful. There's something that this gets right. And here's what it is. This rightly desires to dwell in peace with other people. It rightly desires to listen to the desires and the opinions and the thoughts and the feelings and longings of others. And it rightly looks for common ground with neighbors in a secular society. It gets all those things right, but it also gets some things wrong. It wrongly underestimates the danger and it, of, of the corruption of sin. And it has really no category for tough love, only sweet love, right? It's also afraid of being marginalized. And like the defensive folks, it fails to proclaim the public truth of the gospel. Now, who is Jesus in this kind of atmosphere? Jesus is gentle, he is kind, he is unoffensive, and he is, again, weak. Now, how do congregations tend to behave when they adopt this kind of passive posture? Well, congregations are very eager to be relevant to the current cultural moment. Whatever everybody else is talking about, that's what we have to talk about, right? If non-Christians don't respect us, we must be doing it wrong. How do pastors tend to behave in this kind of paradigm? Well, we tend to shy away from tough, unpopular passages of scripture and unpopular doctrines and almost adopt a pathological need to be liked by non-Christians. Now, if you're thinking so far that both of these options really don't sound all that healthy or great, you're not wrong, you're right. Let's talk about the third way of closing up our hearts towards others. And this actually may be the most tempting way of all, especially if you are a middle to upper class person that has, a lim that has like some amount of agency in your life, okay? And that is the aggressive posture. The aggressive posture says, I will avoid the pain of an open heart by winning, by overcoming with force those who disagree with me. If the symbol of the defensive posture is a shield of, of, of uh, protection and the shield of a passive posture is a white flag of, of surrender, the shield of the aggressive posture is a sword. Now, what does this get right? It gets something right. It rightly perceives danger in the corruption of sin. And it rightly moves towards that danger. That's the direction, it rightly moves towards. But what does it get wrong? Well, I hope it's obvious. It fails to move towards the other in love and therefore fails to proclaim and embody the public truth of the gospel. It sees others as enemies to be defeated and it tends to overestimate its own virtue and underestimate others' virtue. Now, who is Jesus in this paradigm? Well, Jesus needs us to fight for him. Jesus can't defend himself or win all on his own. He needs us to do it. Therefore, he must be, again, weak. Now, how do congregations and churches tend to operate in this kind of paradigm? There is usually a persistent emphasis on revival. It's like the third or fourth or fifth great awakening is always just around the corner. As long as we get preaching and program and music and all of the, and branding just right, then the church is somehow gonna like, you know, explode and thriving and flourishing. Or, or maybe both and, there tends to be a persistent emphasis on winning political victories. If we can just get the right person in office, then all will be well. Now, how do pastors tend to behave in this kind of paradigm? There's usually a high emphasis on strategy. Let's be smarter than our neighbors. Let's be holier than our neighbors. Let's be better than our neighbors. Now, 
before we go any further, as we've talked about these three postures, I want to confess something to you. This is true, depending on the day and time and situation. Y'all, I have a tendency to fall into every single one of these, depending on the moment. I want to protect myself. My default setting is nearly always defensive. I'm kind of a wimp. I like to pretend that I'm not, but I actually am. I desperately want to be liked. I'm overly sensitive. My skin is paper thin. And I regularly overestimate my own virtue and tend to see anyone in my way as an enemy to be defeated. And so I want to ask you a question. Just think about this if you're willing to. Towards which one of these three do you most naturally lean? All of us naturally gravitate towards one of these when we feel afraid, when we feel powerless, when we feel a loss of agency, when we feel marginalized. And if you don't feel any sort of resonance with any of these three, either I haven't explained it very well or you're kind of kidding yourself. Now, listen, the question still remains, how do we participate in the mission of God? And so as we try to unearth and excavate some sort of answer there, let's just think, how have God's people historically responded to this experience of feeling powerless and feeling weak and feeling marginalized. Well, let's just think about some of these characters through the story of Scripture. Think about the character of Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, who suffers in order to save millions from famine. Think about Esther, dear Esther, who puts her life on the line for the sake of saving God's people. Think about Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, who's called to suffer in order to prophesy the truth to God's people. Think about what speaking that truth cost him. Thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Jewish uh, elite leaders who bore public witness in the city of Babylon and as consequence were like thrown into a burning furnace. Think about the Old Testament prophet of Daniel who kneels to pray publicly even when it's illegal. Think about Hosea, who has probably the worst and hardest calling of all time, right? Deliberately goes out and marries an unfaithful woman, suffering betrayal over and over again, so that in his life he might embody and demonstrate the mercy and love and faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. And think about how that whole story of God's people suffering as a marginalized fringe group through the Old Testament actually culminates in the person and work of Jesus in his incarnation and ultimately in his crucifixion. Think about how Jesus moves towards humanity in his incarnation, coming to us in strength. No, God as a baby in weakness, but not so that we can defend him or fight for him, but so that he can offer, so that he can offer himself for us. And in his incarnation, he moves towards us, opening up his heart. And in his crucifixion, what does Jesus do? He gives himself away suffering for our good. The life and death of Jesus is the open heart of God. If you want to know what God's open heart looks like, it looks like the life and death of Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see the beauty and wonder of Christ's open heart of love and unrestricted affection for us? Y'all, our response in opening our hearts back to him in letting our affection for God and then from that our affection to one another be unrestricted, that is the fourth and final and ultimate posture and paradigm of a follower of Jesus in the 21st century 
in the city of Richmond at Redeemer Anglican Church right now. The fourth posture is this this open heart of incarnational love. See, if the symbol of defense is a shield of protection and the symbol of passivity is a white flag of surrender and the symbol of aggression is a sword of conquest, then the symbol of incarnation is an open heart and a cross. The shape of our mission as a marginalized church is the incarnation, weakness and vulnerability, and crucifixion, suffering for the sake of others. Unlike the defensive posture, we are not trying primarily to protect ourselves. We move out towards others at great risk and cost. Unlike the passive posture, we are different. We are a peculiar, odd, unique people who stand out. We do not fit in. And we confront the lies of our age with the public truth of the gospel. But unlike the aggressive posture, we're not trying to win. We are not seeking to conquer, but to suffer and to serve. Here's the point. Listen if you can. We do not want to win. We want to lose so well that Christ's victory is proclaimed. We do not want to win. We want to lose so well and so gracefully that the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed in our very lives. So how do followers of Jesus behave in this kind of paradigm? What does it look like? Well, it looks like open hearts, knowing that we're going to get hurt and yet going out anyways. It looks like not being defensive, allowing ourselves to be judged and misunderstood. It looks like not assimilating in passivity, continuing to proclaim the unique offensiveness of Jesus and his cross and the public truth of the gospel. But it looks like not dominating with aggression. Anyone in our way? Look, if somebody is standing in your way, that is somebody whose feet you may wash. We are not called, listen, to go out and gut it out for Jesus, right? If you're thinking to yourself right now, this is a rousing call to go be miserable for God. Like, no, (laughs) you have misunderstood. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Uh, One of my pastors, uh, when I was a kid growing up was... um, great theologian named Ed Clowney. And he writes, he puts it this way, Christ's suffering was redemptive, not because suffering itself is redemptive. It's not. Don't make that mistake. Suffering itself alone is not redemptive. But Christ's suffering is redemptive because Christ himself is the redeemer. And therefore, if you are suffering in Jesus, then your suffering becomes redemptive in and through him. And so many of you are already doing this well. I see you in your parenting, in your counseling, in the way that you are kind to each other, even in little things like small talk, in the way that you receive criticism and don't respond in kind, in the way that you are bearing up under the loneliness of our time and yet still trying to befriend others, even in your own loneliness, in the way that you are so often misunderstood and judged, but you don't misunderstand and judge back. Instead, you respond with seeking understanding and grace towards others in the way that you are feeding the hungry out of your own pantries, in the way that so many of you are welcoming strangers into your home, in the way that you are, as a whole, giving yourselves away in love. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. I love you. You're doing great. Friends, your suffering is dignified. And I hope and pray that this morning you rediscover the joy in it, that you have the eyes to see the truth of the gospel proclaimed in your own life. May you embody the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus, and may you endure. Now, how do we together remind ourselves of our continued participation in this mission together? 
Well, we do it, friends, in the sacraments every single week. Whenever we either participate in or witness a baptism, what are we doing? We are baptizing a child or an adult into the what? Death of Jesus and into his resurrection. And when we come to this table every single week, what are we doing? We are feeding, being nourished on the body and blood of our King who died and then was raised again. Come with me, if you can, back to the monastery in Algeria. You know what those monks decided to do? They decided to stay and to endure and to suffer through the danger for the sake of love for the people they were called to serve. Love for Christ and love for the people of their village kept them there. And you know what happened? Nearly all of them perished. But these brothers, in their faithfulness, embodied the incarnation in their presence, their refusal to leave, and they embodied the crucifixion of Jesus in their suffering and their death. And remember that interaction between that village woman and the elderly monk who was so discouraged, where she says, are you going to stay or are you going to go? And he says, we are birds on a branch. We don't know if or when we will fly away. Do you know what she said in return to him? She said, no, we are the birds. You are the branch. If you leave, we lose our footing. And what that interaction points us to, friends, is the shape of our mission as a marginalized church to continue in faithful presence, to open our hearts towards others, never closing them, not for a minute, and giving our lives away for the sake of others, moving towards others in order to suffer for them. That is how we proclaim the truth of the gospel in the city of Richmond in the 21st century. Open hearts, knowing all the dangers and all the risks, opening our hearts anyways. Y'all, you don't have to defend yourselves and you don't have to fit in and you don't have to win because Jesus is not weak, y'all. He is strong and his heart is open to you and in him, your heart can actually be open to others. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we hold up all of our weakness to your strength, our failure to your faithfulness, our sinfulness to your perfection, our loneliness to your compassion, our little pains to your great agony on the cross. We pray that you will cleanse us, strengthen us, guide us, so that in all ways our lives may be lived as you would have them lived, without cowardice and for you alone. Show us how to live in true humility, true contrition, and true love. In your name we pray, amen.